from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is Ag Day. A trip to wine country. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for coming. Cheers. What has this family-owned vineyard leading the field? Stopping a strike. We're about to do something where Congress will forever be settling the disputes through congressional action. The latest is the Senate faces a big decision regarding a looming walkout by thousands of railroad workers. And the levels are released. Uh, it, uh, it allows us to kind of continue from an industry standpoint. Uh, constructively. What does the future hold for the potential of ethanol production in U.S. corn producers? We'll break it down right now on Ag Day. Good morning, I'm Michelle Rook. Clinton is on assignment. The EPA is giving ethanol and biofuels production a boost over the next three years. The agency releasing its long-awaited proposed blending requirements. Here's a look at the key numbers. EPA's proposal calls for overall blending mandates of 20.82 billion gallons next year and then a billion more over that number in 2024, followed by more than 22.5 billion in 2025. Looking specifically at corn-based ethanol, the volumes would be set at 15 billion in 2023, but EPA is adding a supplemental volume of 250 million gallons to address a 2017 court decision in a case brought by biofuels groups. It's then set at 15.25 billion for both 2024 and 2025. EPA would also modestly boost biomass-based diesel over the next three years, but there is no carve-out for renewable diesel. Included in the plan, an effort to encourage the use of renewable natural gas to power electric vehicles. All in all, the plan is considered a big win for the ethanol industry. I think, you know, that's a, a minimum from uh, kind of moving ahead that you know, allows corn ethanol uh, production in the U.S. to kind of be fully uh, included within the renewable fuel standard uh, in 23, 24, and 25. Uh, it, uh, it allows us to kind of continue from an industry standpoint uh, constructively. As we were looking for growth in all of the categories which is proposed. We were looking for some multi-year certainty under the RFS, which is there. Meanwhile, officials with the Clean Fuels Alliance America say the RFS proposal woefully underestimates biomass-based diesel, adding the proposed volumes are below existing production, undercutting investments in new capacity. The rule now goes into a 60-day comment period. The fate of a possible nationwide rail strike starting next Friday is now in the hands of the Senate. As we told you yesterday, the U.S. House voted to avert the rail strike that would have crippled the shipping industry. The bill blocks more than 100,000 rail workers from walking off the job. It imposes a labor agreement hammered out by rail companies, labor leaders, and the Biden administration months ago, but rejected by workers in four of 12 unions. The House separately passed a bill that was related and revised the original deal to add seven days of paid sick leave to the contract, one of the chief sticking points between unions and companies. But only three Republicans voted for the sick leave measure in the House, which signals hurdles in getting enough GOP support in the Senate to pass. The Senate could choose to go along with the change or ignore it without affecting the original legislation. So one legitimate question is being asked now, are we about to do something where Congress will forever be settling the disputes through congressional action? I think that's a bad precedent and something that resonates with me. I talked to Chuck Schumer this morning about it. He's still waiting for a, a 
sign from Senator McConnell that he's ready for us to call this measure. It takes bipartisanship to get to the measure. It takes bipartisanship to pass it. So we can't do it without the help of Republicans. The Democrats stand ready to back the president. Business groups fear a freight rail strike would lead to widespread shortages of food and goods to prices spiking. One economic group estimates it would cost the U.S. economy $1 billion in just the first week. Producers in the West could use the moisture, and they're getting it in the form of more snow. Meteorologist Matt Yersavik joins us with more. That's right, Michelle. We've got more rain, more mountain snow out in parts of the West, and we're going to see some colder temperatures, especially in the Northwest, but also coming through the center part of the country as we head through the middle part of the week. We are going to start, though, as we head uh, middle part of next week, I should say. But on Friday to end this week, We've got another system moving across the northern plains. Parts of the Rockies going to see some snow out of this as well. It's also going to reinforce the colder air there in parts of the west. Now, another storm system is lurking off the west coast. That's going to start to move on in, bringing rain and mountain snow to places like Colorado and Oregon as we head into the weekend and then into the early part of next week. And that second system, you can see it right here, it's going to start to spread a lot of moisture in right over uh, parts of uh, the uh, Sierras there in California and Nevada, bringing upwards of two to three plus feet of snow in some of those higher elevations. So something that we'll really have to watch out there, but also deal with uh, the snowpack increasing over the next couple of days. And check out this great shot from Carol Bauer in Graceville, Minnesota. Check out the light pillars at last report on November 20th, 98% of the corn harvest was complete. Yields in the Fields on Ag Day is brought to you by Micro Essentials from Mosaic, the science of more. Discover our proven products. Text YIELDS to 31313. The state was expecting an average corn yield of 172.3 bushels an acre. That's down more than four bushels from last year. I'll have more on your forecast coming up. Grain saw sell-off on Thursday, especially soybeans and soybean oil. We'll talk about the losses with John Payne coming up. And later celebrating a farm that's all about family and growing great grapes in the country. USDA revising its farm sector profits forecast for this year, and it's predicting that net cash farm income could hit a record. Take a look at this new chart from the Economic Research Service. Net cash farm income minus cash expenses are expected to be almost $188 billion. The total would be the highest on record with inflation adjusted. That's more than a 19% increase over last year. And look at the net farm income. It's forecasted to increase by more than $10 billion to over $160 billion. That's the highest since 1973 after adjusting for inflation. Net farm income is a broader measure of profitability. Both cash receipts and expenses are forecast to increase with cash receipts at their highest level on record, but expenses cutting into some of that, increasing almost 12%, along with direct government payments to farmers down 40% from last year. A down day in the grains on Thursday. John Payne is joining us with analysis and especially soybeans and soybean oil imploding. It looked like after yep. the uh, RFS announcement. Yeah, that was one, I think, that disappointed the market to a certain degree. You know, the demand, the numbers that were expected out of, uh, out of the RFS were, were expected to match demand. 
uh, or I'm sorry, match the capacity. And at this point, the capacity for the the amount of supply that they want to blend is going to be well above what demand is right now. So that should should leave some excess supply around. And in the case of soybean oil, it's the most expensive edible oil on the market by about 10%. So today we probably have that, but there's still quite a bit more to go if uh, the U.S. wants to begin to export any of this bean oil. Um, and I think in the short run, we'll see some just sharp movements down, maybe even as low as 60 uh, into the high 50s for some of the deferreds, um, and then kind of watch what happens in Brazil. I think that's that's still in the cards here as far as a weather problem. But if bean oil is going to fall, crush is going to fall, and if meal isn't there to kind of hold the hold the line, which today it did to a certain degree, but I think that was more of a flip of the oil share, uh, I think there could be some pain to come here in the beans in the short run. If Brazil has a good crop, right, right. now it looks like they do. And soybeans kind of pulled corn and wheat down, but they also had poor exports, which started them off on a bad note on Thursday too, right? Yeah, really, there isn't much to talk about when it comes to U.S. export business. Um, it's decent for the livestock markets, but it's not really very good for anything else that, that gets tracked. So soybean oil, I'm, you know, five-year lows, wheat, five-year lows, corn below five-year lows. Um, and, and in the case of beans, we've had some good purchases, but really all of that's coming from Mexico uh, that's at least leaving the country right now. So, um, again, I think to get the market to trade north of 15 into that four, 15 and a half range, we need to see a weather problem in Brazil. And right now there really isn't anything in the cards to, uh, to project that. So you've got, you know, longs covering here and a specific amount of trade kind of tied up in the long biodiesel story. And that could take a couple of days to wash out, maybe even a little longer. All right, thanks for joining us, John Payne. We have more Ag Day coming up. To find John's newsletter, This Week in Grain and Oilseeds, head over to www.thisweekingrain.com. Ag Day is brought to you by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator Closing Wheels provide quicker emergence and are more consistent in dry conditions than any other closing wheels. Order 12 to 16 rows today and qualify for free shipping or 20% off an end zone moisture management package. Well, in with a look at our National Ag Weather Forecast meteorologist, Matt Urasavik, and of course, Strout Monitor out this week. Not a lot of improvement, but maybe some good news on the way. Yeah, there is going to be some improvements, especially as we go over the next week or two. We'll see a lot more active weather in the west and in the northern plains, both areas where we've been in drought for quite some time now. And those are the areas where you can see there's still extreme to even exceptional drought parts of Kansas down into Oklahoma. And then if you look west into parts of Utah, Nevada, and into uh, parts of the San Joaquin Valley there in California. So a lot of moisture going to be in areas where we really need it. And obviously this is going to be good news, not only for winter wheat that's planted in the middle of the country, but also heading into next year and planting season in the spring. Hopefully we'll see some sort of relief from some of these drought conditions. Now here's a look at precipitation over the next 10 days. We start off with a lot going on here in the south with a storm system, but then we've got more moisture here as we head through the middle part of the country uh, and into early next week and really through next week, right where we've had some of those drought conditions persist. And look at this, that storm system is going to bring much needed rain and mountain snow back in parts of the west. And we talk about snow. Let's look at where that's going to be at. Uh, there's going to be a 
swath of snow and into the weekend here for parts of the upper Midwest, but then northern plains, Rockies and the Sierras going to be dealing with heavy snow as we head into next week. So that's something we'll continue to keep an eye on with that heavy snow, especially in the higher elevations. there, really starting to shore up some of that uh, snowpack in the West. Now this is the first system that's going to be moving out into the upper Midwest as we head through Friday. Just a quick little burst of snow there, but colder air in behind that. And then that next system that is going to be following high pressure system off into the West. That's going to start to bring in that moisture Saturday into Sunday for parts of the West. And once it starts coming, it is going to come full force as we head into Sunday and Monday. High pressure then in control of the center of the country. And while high pressure is in control, it is going to be a little bit warmer there for the middle of the country next week. But before that, we've got some cooler air beginning to move eastward again with another cold front as we head into the weekend. And we'll continue to track that right here on Ag Day. That's a look around the country. Now let's take a look at the weather where you live. Memphis, Tennessee, mostly cloudy with afternoon showers, a high near 61 degrees. Heading to Jackson, Wyoming, snow ending with blowing snow, a high near 19. And Ashland, Oregon, mostly cloudy with afternoon snow, a high of 39. Next year, we could have more ag goods coming into the country than leaving it. We'll explain coming up. And later, a toast to one California winery that's been family owned for decades in the country. And don't forget to sign up for the Case IH Holiday Giveaway. Each winner will get a Case IH prize pack. One lucky winner will be drawn each day from Monday, December 19th through Friday, December 23rd. We'll announce those winners on Ag Day. Then the grand prize winner will be announced on U.S. Farm Report on Christmas Eve, and they'll win a Farmall Seed Pedal Tractor. To enter, head to the website on your screen, caseihholidaygiveaway.com. dollar is expected to slow U.S. farm exports while at the same time increasing imports next year. That's according to a new USDA Trade Outlook report. It's projecting imports at $199 billion, a new record high. That's up $2 billion from the August forecast and up $5 billion from imports for this year. Experts say the increase is largely driven by higher imports of horticultural products, sugar, and tropical products, along with grain and feed products. All these commodities are priced in dollars on a global market, so the stronger the dollar is relative to other commodities, more of a headwind that that presents. Meanwhile, exports for 2023 are projected at $190 billion. That's down $3.5 billion from the August forecast and $6.4 billion off of fiscal year 2022. A new study claims the world's biggest meat and dairy companies emit more methane than countries such as Russia, Canada, Australia, and Germany. The study coming from a group called the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. It claims methane emissions when combined for the 15 companies it studied are responsible for 3.4% of global methane emissions from human activity and 11% of total global livestock emissions. The companies include JBS, Tyson, and the Dairy Farmers of America. The report says the methane footprint of JBS is greater than that of Italy, Spain, and the UK combined. We asked Jamie Yonker of the National Milk Producers Federation for comment. He pointed to the study's own disclaimer, which says any potential interpretation of the report as making an allegation against a specific company would be misleading and incorrect. 
He added, quote, the U.S. dairy industry stands behind science-based analysis, including the 2013 peer-reviewed life cycle analysis, which found dairy to be about 2% of the total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. A 2019 FAO report determined that despite increasing milk production, overall greenhouse gas emissions declined in the North American dairy sector, end quote. In 2020, the U.S. dairy industry announced a goal to be greenhouse gas neutral by 2050, and Yonker says it is poised to meet that goal. Farming is much more than just about corn, soybeans, and livestock. Coming up, we head to California's wine country and an amazing family-owned vineyard next. We've been telling you about the new YouTube series called Leading the Field. Farm Journal Studios has partnered with Nutrient Ag Solutions to bring you stories from the ag world that you might not have heard. Ag Day's Clinton Griffiths recently caught up with host and professional NASCAR spotter Brett Griffin. Brent talked about the latest episode, his visit to California wine country. That I went to see, I mean, you see millions of grapes and the fact that we can take you know, that from a vine and turn it into so many bottles of wine and so many other fun things that, that we as consumers uh, love to eat. Uh, I mean, great question. At the end of the day, just gratitude for what all these men and women do for us. Absolutely. Perfect. Hey, thank you for the insights. Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate you guys and we'll keep yeah. plugging along. We got some more episodes coming out later this fall slash early winter. So everybody that clicks play, we appreciate you. And here's a preview of Brett's trip to Wente Vineyards, a place that's been around since 1883. It's the oldest continuously operated family-owned vineyard in America. Nikki, this vineyard is beautiful. What was it like growing up around here? You know, um, I was out here in the vineyards pretty much all the time. Um, my, my family has horses, um, so we, I grew up riding horses through the vineyard with my dad or, you know, following him to work. Um, and I sort of just thought it was normal up until I, you know, got into the age of going to school and realized that it's not all that normal to be growing up out in the country on vineyards. Um, but I feel really blessed now looking back to have such an outdoor-based childhood. And I think that's really what drove me to pursue a career in vineyard management. Being in business since 1883, you know, that 139 years um, has a lot of historical background on how to manage the land and what makes sustainability so important to us is that generational history that we have because we really want to take care of the soil so that the soil will in turn take care of us so that the sixth generation and beyond has you know the opportunity to work in such a beautiful environment well right now i'm just checking for any potential problems you know this is what we do and we make sure that you know, we don't get any uh, surprises. So we check, we're checking the grapes for mildew, we're checking for insects, checking for fertility, and just making sure that everything is gonna come out right to where in the end we have a good product for Nikki to make wine. So during the growing process, what are you most worried about? Mildew. Yeah, mildew for sure. This variety here is actually called Suzao and we don't really get mildew in this variety. Right. We might get a little bit of bunch rot. So that's when the cluster has moisture on the inside, whether that's from broken berries or maybe um, like over the weekend, it actually rained a little bit. It was like 75 and rained on Sunday last week. So that is a potential cause of bunch rot. So you would find that later in the season. But right now we just finished bloom. We did a, a nice bloom um, prevent 
preventative bunch rot spray that uh, it fits in with our sustainability program and Robert helped us to create that program. So appreciate Robert's help so that we don't have to worry about problems. Thank y'all so much for having me. Cheers. Cheers, thanks for coming. Cheers. Nikki, next time we'll let you have a sip with us. Yeah, I would love that. This wine is definitely spot on. Thanks, Brett. You can watch the full episode as well as other Leading the Field episodes on the Farm Journal YouTube page. That's all the time we have for this morning. Thanks for watching. For all of us here at Ag Day, I'm Michelle Rock. Have a great day.